hope you do, that you can uh, turn to Philippians chapter 4. Uh, we'll begin this morning in verse 14. You'll find that on page 982 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And if you are visiting with us this morning, you do not have a Bible, we'd love for you to take that copy of God's Word in the Pew Rack in front of you as our gift to you, that you too might know our God who has given us this revelation. And so here we are in uh, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 14. Hear now the Word of God. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me uh, help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time in which we now can come and to hear from you. We pray that you would guide and lead through your word, that your spirit would come and teach us, and then apply these truths to our lives and plant this seed into our heart that we might leave here more in love with our God, more devoted to following him, more eager to be like Christ, that the nations may know you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was in 1813 that America's first foreign missionaries, Adoniram and Adam Johnson, arrived in the nation of Burma. Adoniram and Anne, during their time in Burma, would face uh, unimaginable difficulties, including spending 18 months uh, under uh, incredible torture in a torture camp and the burying of numerous children. Compounding their difficulties and hardships was the fact that even six, seven years into their ministry in Burma, trying to build the kingdom of God, they had not seen a single Burmese come to faith in Christ. In fact, Adoniram was joined with two other missionaries early on in his ministry, and still there was no fruit to be seen. That is until June 6 in 1819, when Adoniram Judson received a letter from a man named Maung Nu a Burmese man who had shown some curiosity to Jesus, but no love or devotion to him. He wrote them a letter. I'd like to read it to you this morning. I believe it will be on the screen behind me. I, Maungno, the constant recipient of your excellent favor, approach your feet. Whereas my Lord's three, and that would be a reference to the three missionaries, come to the country of Burma, not for the purposes of trade, but to preach the religion of Jesus Christ, the Son of the Eternal God. I, having heard and understand, am with a joyful mind filled with love. I believe that the divine Son, Jesus Christ, suffered death in the place of men to atone for their sins. Like a heavy-laden man, I feel my sins are very many. The punishment of my sins I deserve to suffer. Since it is so, 
Do you, sirs, consider that I, taking refuge in the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ and receiving baptism in order to become his disciple, shall dwell one with yourselves, a band of brothers, in the happiness of heaven, and therefore grant me the ordinance of baptism? It is through the grace of Jesus Christ that you, sirs, have come by ship from one country and continent to another, and that we have met together. I pray that the Lord's three, that a suitable day may be appointed, and that I may receive the ordinance of baptism. Moreover, as it is only since I have met with you, sirs, that I have, have known about the eternal God, I venture to pray that you will still unfold to me the religion of God that my old disposition may be destroyed and my new disposition improved. Can you imagine the joy that letter must have brought? Can you imagine just this labor and sacrifice, the kind that you and I know nothing about, and yet looking at it all, wondering where was the fruit, where was the, the kingdom, and one day a letter by mail arrives, a man saying, I too believe in Christ. I too want to follow Christ. Can you imagine the joy three weeks later when now our brother in Christ, received baptism as he followed Jesus through the baptismal waters? In fact, can you imagine the, the joy in Burma even today when at that day, almost two centuries ago, there was not a single believer amongst the Burmese. Today there are two million believers in Jesus Christ in Burma. The gospel has penetrated that land due to the sacrifice of this man Adoniram and his wife Anne. Our Lord Jesus Christ, of course, has told us prior to his ascension to heaven, go and make disciples of all nations. Some of you children at VBS learned that this week, didn't you? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This, of course, is we understand to be our commission. It is one that we understand, and it is one that our brother Paul embraced as he followed that Macedonian call into the city of Philippi. And there he would spend three weeks in Philippi seeing a woman by the river come to Christ, a jailer and his family, and perhaps a formerly demonized slave girl all bow their knees to Jesus. And there he formed a church, and three weeks later he went on his way. It is to that that church that Paul writes this letter that we consider this morning a decade after it started. In fact, we see that he began this letter in chapter 1 by thanking them that they too seek to make disciples of nations. For we read in chapter 1 and verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because, note this, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And now after some months in our study in the book of Philippians, we come to its conclusion and we see that the apostle returns to the theme on which he started as he once again rejoices in their partnership. For we see in verse 15 of chapter 4, And you Philippians know yourself that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into, here it is, partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. 
There was a partnership between this church at Philippi and this missionary far away. They they partnered with him by praying for him. And we know, according to this letter and the letter written to the Corinthians, sending short-term mission trips to help Paul and these reciprocal updates as they informed him as to what's going on in their life. And he did likewise. But the aspect to the partnership in which the apostle was referring to here is their financial giving. He wants to talk to them about their money. In fact, that's clear if you look in verse 18. I have received full payment and more, he says. I'd like to talk to you about money this morning. Uh, specifically, your money. Uh, and I, I know that's the favorite topic of all. There perhaps uh, many of you woke up this morning hoping you would get a good sermon on stewardship. Um, I'm sure there are some here, but perhaps there are some you prefer not to handle this topic. I understand that. I understand the stigma that people in my profession sometimes have. That preachers are always after people's money. I've had these conversations. I've, in fact, I had one just a number of weeks ago with a, a former neighbor of mine who stopped going to church because all you preachers want is our money. And so I'm aware of that. And so in light of, of kind of the baggage that our, I think our nation has, I, before we look at this text, perhaps we could, I could offer you a couple caveats. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Uh, we're delighted that you are here. And you are always welcome with us. And we hope that uh, you feel uh, l- welcomed and, and even loved. Uh, I do want you to know that this message largely will not be directed towards you. Um, that I, I will not be speaking, uh, I will not be charging you as I will be charging the members at Hamilton Baptist Church. And so uh, please be aware of that, that, that when I'm asking for giving, I, I, we don't want anything from you. But I do think this sermon might be of interest to you because it will actually give you an opportunity to consider how Christians consider their money. That that you could you could think about perhaps why is it that that Christians have a understanding of their finances radically different than the world's. In fact, money is such a huge part of our lives. We give so much of our lives to to making it and accumulating it, and yet Christians come at it from a totally different angle. And I think that might be of interest to you. In fact, it might actually help you to to not only consider what it is that we value, Christians value by what we do with our money, but I think it will also help you think about, okay, what do I value as I see where my money goes? And then maybe you, you would profit even by asking a follow-up question. Is what I value truly valuable? I think that might be helpful for you. A profitable idea perhaps you've never thought of before. If you're here visiting with us this morning, I do want you to know um, that I, I don't mind talking about money and challenging Christians to give sacrificially. I don't mind to do so because Jesus didn't mind to do so. In fact, Jesus spoke on money um, more than prayer more than faith, more than heaven and hell combined. And so um, he, I think, shared almost half his parables were about how to deal with your possessions and your finances. And if it's good enough for Christ, it is good enough for you and I. Perhaps I'd like to address those of you perhaps this morning who come from a challenging home situation. And there may be some here, and I, I trust there are. There are some who would love to be able to support the church greater, with greater financial uh, generosity. And yet, perhaps you come from a home in, in which uh, your spouse is not a believer. And therefore, you, you struggle with that. And that's a source of tension. And Perhaps you're not even able to give anything because your spouse controls the money. I, I do not want this message to be to make you heavy laden. I'm not intending to fill you with guilt or condemnation. God is full of grace. He knows your situation. You continue to follow Christ and pray that your spouse might be one to him. Let's not worry about that. So please don't, don't feel any type of guilt whatsoever from this message. 
The last group I want to address before we get into our text are the members of Hamilton Baptist Church. That I trust is the bulk of us. Please note that I will be talking about money this morning, not because we are in a financial crunch. If you will see in your bulletin that we're practically at budget, and so we're doing just fine. Please also know that we are not entering into a building campaign or some stewardship project, right? Please know that, that we, after this message, will not once again pass the plate. You will not receive an envelope on your way out of the building. You will not get an email on Wednesday with me expressing the new needs that we have. None of that is the case. I will not, in fact, give you any opportunity to give after I talk to you about giving, except for next week. Next week, we're going to take up an offering as we do every Sunday. But what I will give you is an opportunity to consider how you steward your resources and what that says about your love and devotion to Christ. That's your opportunity this morning. To look, I think, how while we use our money is often a window into our lives and our pursuit of Jesus. And I would encourage you to look through that window this morning as we look at God's Word and His text. He actually, as we've seen here, Paul is talking about this church entering into a missionary partnership. I find God's providence uh, rather remarkable that Adam will be here on such a Sunday as we consider just that, how Hamilton Baptist Church might be able to partner with his ministry. And we see that Paul talks about these gospel partners and how they give, and he offers us five truths about their giving. The first being that gospel partners practice sacrificial giving. Note verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, the apostle says. When he says share my trouble, the trouble in which he's referring to is the fact that he's in prison. We considered that last week. And that in this day, if a a man is in prison, uh, he is dependent upon outsiders for his food and clothing and whatever needs he had. And so in some sense, Paul now going on four years of imprisonment is in trouble. He needs help. And so he says that he has trouble. And more than that, he says it was good of the Philippians to share his trouble. The sharing of his trouble is a reference to the financial gift in which he received from them at the hands of Epaphroditus that we began to consider last week in the previous text. And so Paul receives this gift. He says, you're sharing my trouble. And he uses that uh, idea as an opportunity to praise them, not just for this gift, but for their long-term support for him. He does so by taking us back 10 years when the gospel first arrived in Philippi through the mouth of the Apostle Paul, as we see in verse 15. And the Philipp- you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. And so from this verse, we learn that the Philippian church was supporting their missionary throughout his time in Macedonia or what we today might call Greece. And so they would support him while he was ministering and planting churches there. But even when he left, according to verse 15, they kept giving. Even when he moved far away, they kept giving. In fact, they were unique in doing so. Verse 15 tells us that no church entered into a partnership with him like this except Philippi. In fact, you want to notice how soon their support began. We see in verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you help, you sent me help for my needs once and again. I don't know if you see the kind of exclamation in that verse. Even in Thessalonica, he is saying, of course, Thessalonica is just down the road, 95 miles south of Philippi. And so he would spend three weeks there in Philippi, perhaps take a week to get to Thessalonica. And by the time he is planting a church in Thessalonica, this four week old church in Philippi is already 
already supporting this missionary. They're already sending financial support to him. In fact, not just once, but you notice he says there, once and again, or we might say time and again. And so we see the immediacy of their support and the constancy of their support. Even when Paul would go on to Corinth, there he would spend a year and a half ministering to the wealthy Corinthians that had uh, great resources to support this missionary. And Paul even would say, I have a right, as do all who preach the gospel, to make a living for preaching the gospel. He says to them that he would not take that right. He quote, quote him, we did not use this right, he says to them. Paul was able to minister for a year and a half in Corinth and not take a dime from the Corinthians because the Philippians continued to support him. For he writes in Second Corinthians, Chapter 11, when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. This church, without a doubt, was the greatest missionary supporter for the Apostle Paul. And their gifts enabled him to focus on the kingdom. Their gifts enabled this missionary to go and to proclaim that there is forgiveness found in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Can you imagine their legacy? You think about the eternities that have been changed. Because this little poor church in Philippi sacrificed. And they were poor, by the way. Paul, in fact, makes a great deal of their poverty when he talks to them, talks to the Corinthians about them. He says that the Philippians were in extreme poverty and faced a severe test of affliction, and yet they did not let this financial crisis prevent them from supporting this missionary work. The apostle goes on and says, For they, the Philippians, gave according to their means, and as I can testify beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And now we are some years later, and they are still supporting him. They still are are helping him. They don't let their poverty turn them inward. They don't let their poverty turn them into the self-protective shell. They continued this partnership with him because they loved him and they loved their king for whom he served. They were his partners. In fact, I love this little phrase here. Um, I think if missionaries and churches did this more, these partnerships would be much more helpful. You notice in verse 15 at the end, he says, you entered into partnership with me in giving... No, he doesn't stop there, does he? In giving and receiving, right? And so it wasn't just the church giving and giving and giving. They received from the apostle. They received from the missionary. Certainly not finances, but love and support. And he would come and be with them. And he would pray for them. And he was very concerned what was going on in their life. And he would even write them letters, not simply just to inform them of his work, but to help them to follow after Jesus. A beautiful, reciprocal, and robust relationship this church had with this missionary as they sacrificed for him. This is what a, a picture, I think, of what a church is supposed to be as they, they're generous in their giving. So how about us, Hamilton Baptist Church? How are we doing? Well, I will tell you, in last year, in the year 2013, we took three, our three annual offerings, all devoted to missions, and you gave, I believe, sacrificially $60,000. I was very pleased with that, very proud of that, far uh, outpacing what we have done in the previous years. Even beyond that, 
Hamilton Baptist Church, according to his budget this year, will give $141,000 for the causes of missions outside of our church. Again, filling me with great delight. In fact, I just crossed my desk, came one of these financial church finance newsletters, and it was a survey of 2,200 churches, and it kind of broke down their budget about how what goes, what percent goes to staff, and what percent goes to this and that. And of these 2,200 evangelical churches, the 9% was the average that the church gives, 9% of its budget to missionary causes. Do you know Hamilton Baptist Church does not give 9% or 10% or 15% or even 20%? We give 21% to missionary causes that we are sending our money outside of these walls in order that the kingdom of God may abound and may grow and Christ's fame may increase. And well, what happens if you give and, and, and we exceed our budget? Well, please know that we will not take that money and put it in a savings account. We will not earn a quarter percent interest in a CD. We will not bury it out back until Jesus comes home. Any money that we receive, the above two months of our budget as expenses, we will set aside for the cause of missions, which is why we had $125,000 as of January 1st to support local and national and international work, which is why Adam is here, that we might explore these ideas. In other words, I am very excited with what Hamilton Baptist Church is doing. I believe God is blessing us abundantly as he grows within us a desire to see the nations come to Christ and our neighbors come to Christ, that we might be a church that sacrificially gives. Can we improve? Well, you know the answer, don't you? Yes, yes, we can. But I praise the Lord for what God is doing. We ought to give him praise for this work, and I'm very encouraged by it. My question then for you is, how are you doing? I mean, that's how the church is doing. But what role do you play? How are you giving? Are you part of that? I'll take this opportunity to let you know in November, I think it's about three months away, we are going to take up an offering to support the persecuted church. I'll let you know the very next month in December, we are going to take up, as we do every year, our Lottie Moon Christmas offering for the support of our 5,000 international missionaries through the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. I hope that's something that doesn't spring up on you. I hope you're already planning about that and praying about that and budgeting that you might too give sacrificially as we see here in Scripture. In fact, do you notice why Paul is seeking this gift? Why he wants them to give this way? Why are we even talking about it this morning? Well, it's not simply so that missionaries may be blessed. So that is the huge part of it. But you notice Paul says, I want you to give in order that you might be blessed. For we see, secondly, gospel partners are blessed through their giving. Note verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, he says, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. You see, Paul doesn't seek the gift as much as he sought after their heart, that he has this great joy over their pursuit of Christ, their love for their king, and the fact that they were giving in the support of of this cause, that meant more to Paul than the fact that he could eat. It was proof that the Philippians were walking with God. To the apostle, money is an incredibly spiritual matter, just as it is with our Lord. In fact, he would say in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 21, perhaps you have this memorized. Where your treasure is, you know it, don't you? There your heart will be also. Jesus is telling us that how we spend our money says a great deal about where our heart is. This is beautifully displayed in, in the life of Zacchaeus, that, that miserly little thug, right? That mafia boss, extorting people, I trust breaking kneecaps when they don't pay up. 
Well, one day he has dinner with Jesus, doesn't he? Jesus, to great scandal, goes to his house. And no one, I trust, imagined that after that dinner, Zacchaeus would emerge declaring publicly, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it full for it. I don't know. Have you ever given away half of your money? Have you ever said, okay, even beyond that, and if I defraud anyone, I will repay him not once or twice or three times, but four times what I have taken from him? Great work is taking place in our heart. In fact, Zacchaeus is living out what the rich young ruler could not, which Jesus said in the previous chapter in Luke, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Zacchaeus is is being transformed as we see. He has this drive to, to get is now gone, replaced from a a drive to give, a joy to give, asking the question, what happened at that dinner? What happened in that conversation with Jesus? Well, Jesus will tell us, won't he? He won't leave us in suspense, for he announces, today salvation has come to this house. Little Zacchaeus got saved. Little Zacchaeus was redeemed from his love of money and love of possessions and was freed to give. You see, what we do with our money is evidence of what God has done in us. That's what Jesus is teaching us. That's what Paul is teaching us here in verse 17. He says that, that this changed life will actually bring blessings upon us. A, a, what does he say there in verse 17? That I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Right? When, when we give, we are credited back with fruit, he says. What Paul is using here is the imagery of, of from what I understand, banking, accounting language. Literally, he's talking about we are receiving back compounding interest on this investment. So Paul's saying, the gift is not so much for me, it's for you. There's a great return on your giving. When, when you give, you are going to receive fruit back upon you. And perhaps this is a reference to what Jesus would teach us about heavenly rewards. In Matthew 6, Jesus said, Lay up for yourselves treasure not on earth, where rust and moth destroy, and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where rust and moth do not destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. He says you can put treasure in heaven, that you could accumulate treasures in heaven while you're here on earth. Raising the question, of course, how do we do this? Well, we do it according to Jesus in Luke 12. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Or elsewhere, Jesus would say, give to those who can't pay you back and go on to tell you why. You will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. That God plans to bless us for our giving. That he says he will even be repaid for your giving. Is that not extraordinary? That God will bless us on that day, on that resurrection. In fact, as I was considering these truths this week, I came across a story that two men who owned a farm, one being an atheist, his neighbor being a Christian, the atheist uh, was greatly annoyed with his Christian neighbor's faith. And in fact, he proposed a challenge. He said, why don't we just plant the same crop and then throughout the, the growing season, you pray to your God for an abundant crop, and I'm just going to spend the time cursing your God. And when we get to October, we'll see who has the bigger crop. Well, the atheist was greatly delighted when October came, and it was clear that his crop was much larger than the Christians. He said to him, See, you fool, what do you have to say about your God now? In which the Christian replied, My God does not settle all his accounts in October. Right? 
The resurrection of the just is when Christ says, we will be blessed. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, he tells us. This is an opportunity for us as we invest in the cause of missions to actually lay up for ourselves investments in heaven. Now is our chance, as Jim Elliott once said, to, to give what we cannot keep in order to gain what we cannot lose. I think we need to understand this, Christian, because we think when we give, when we put it in the plate or send it to equip to serve or some other ministry, that we lose it. It's gone. I I hope it benefits them or someone else, but certainly I'm not going to see it again. Well, it's not true. In fact, the exact opposite is true. If you hold on to it, you will lose it when death causes it to fly away. But God has told us that we can send it on ahead of us, that Christ will recognize the work that we have done and be glad to repay us, reward us. What an extraordinary truth. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What we do with our treasure is a window into our hearts and our souls. The question is, what does God see when He looks there? What does He see? What do you see? God's not after your money, friends. He's after your heart. And He longs to bless you. But He will bless those who long for His kingdom and are willing to sacrifice for it In fact, I think he delights to do so because Paul tells us thirdly that gospel partners worship God through their giving. And Paul wants to encourage the Philippians in their giving, but he doesn't want to do so in order to get more. This is important, I think, in verse 18, for he says, I have received full payment and more, right? So Paul says, you have paid me in full. You owe me nothing more. In fact, not only have I received full full payment, I receive more than full payment. Literally, I'm overflowing, Paul says. My cup runs over. And yet Paul wants them to hear more than simply his appreciation for their financial gifts. He wants the Philippians to understand, and I trust God wants us to understand, that partnering with missions is more than simply having pity on the poor missionaries or the poor Liberians or the poor Kurdish or whoever they may be. It is actually a pleasing act of worship. In fact, Paul changes the imagery from the bank account to that of worship as we read on in verse 18 when he says, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. And note this, friends, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. The point is that when you give, you're not giving to me. You're not even giving to this church. You're not even giving to a missionary organization. What you are actually giving to is God himself. God is the recipient of your giving. These are sacrifices made to, what does he say in there in verse 18? To God. It is to your Father. It is an act of worship. It is a declaration that you love God more than the things that you are giving up. In fact, he tells it a fragrant offering, the aroma of your gifts as we offer them to the Lord, wafts up into heaven as God takes in in that aroma. This is what he's after. He wants, wants that, that, that worship. This is why we practice this in the middle of our corporate worship. We believe giving is an act of worship to God, a fragrant offering. In fact, it reminds me of Noah. Remember when he emerged from the ark after the year long in that boat uh, as God uh, wiped out this world due to his great wrath against unrighteousness and Noah emerged from that. And the first thing Noah did was not build a shelter or go for a walk or find some clean water, but he grabbed some animals which, of which there were a few 
as you know, and he began to sacrifice them to the Lord. This burnt offering is an act of devotion, perhaps overwhelmed by the mercy in which he has received in light of the wrath that has all, uh, occurred all around him. He wants to love God and he wants to worship God. And then we are invited up to heaven immediately after Noah offers this offering and we get to see what's going on with our father. As the Bible tells us in Genesis 8, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I love that. He, we get to even go inside God's heart. What is he thinking? The Lord said in his heart, I will never curse the ground again. He was pleased. When Christians give to the cause of Christ, your father is pleased. He accepts it. And more than that, verse 18 says it is a pleasing to God. Your giving brings pleasure to him. And therefore we give not out of duty, not even out of charity. We give because it's joyful and it's a privilege. We are privileged to give money to the cause of missions, not only because of the need, which is great, but because our living God is worshipped through it. And Paul goes on and, and explains number four, that gospel partners can have confidence in giving. In fact, I want you to see the connection between verse 18 and verse 19. In verse 18, he says there, right in the middle of that verse, I am well supplied. Then he gets down to verse 19 and he says, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He says, I'm well supplied, but you need not to worry. God will make sure that you are supplied. In fact, supplied with what? What is it? Every need. God's going to supply you with every need. This is our assurance or our confidence in giving. Gospel partners can have confidence in their giving. I think there's probably two reasons people struggle to give. One probably is greed. People think that uh, things and money bring happiness. Um, and they want to hold on to that happiness and, and think that, that they're going to be happy. My experience, by the way, has been the opposite. Not that I don't like things, I certainly do, I praise God for them, but it seems to me that giving people are far happier than hoarding people. I wonder if that's your experience as well. It's certainly what the Bible teaches us. For the proverb writer says in chapter 14, happy is he who is gracious to the poor. Isn't that a great verse? Happy is he who is gracious to the poor. Proverb 22, um, he who is generous will be blessed. Acts 20, verse 35, it is more blessed than to receive. I would contend to you that a life of generous simplicity will bring far greater happiness than a life of hoarding luxury. But the other reason people struggle to give is not greed, but fear. I think this is perhaps what invades the church. We're afraid that our expenses won't be made, that our bills won't be paid, that we won't have enough at the end of the money, that we don't have enough to give sacrificially. This is why many people pay their bills first and then give what's left over. They give God their last fruits when he asks for their first fruits. I would like to tell you, if you are, have that fear, I'm going to point you to verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours. Every need he will meet. He will give them all. Now, there has been great debate as to, okay, what does he mean, mean by need? Is this, is he going to say, is this all my material needs or all my financial needs? Or is this more of a spiritual need? Will he supply all my spiritual needs? Well, I, I do believe that, and I think Scripture will support this, that God often blesses those who are generous, generous materially. I believe that God blesses those who give sacrificially often. He blesses them financially. I believe that to be true. So the Bible tells me it's true. 
Solomon wrote, the generous man will be prosperous and he who waters will himself be watered. He will go on to say, he who gives to the poor will never want. Jesus himself will say, give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And so I believe God often blesses the generous financially. Does this mean that if you give, that you will become rich? Right? And you get the diamond cufflinks, right? And soon I'll be sitting on the golden throne, right? With uh, my pinky ring on, right? No, that's not what that means. And many have taken these gospel truths and perverted it in what we now call the prosperity gospel and fruit loops like Kenneth Copeland are going to stand up on television and tell us that if you give, and by the way, if you give, what he means by that, give to him, that God will bless you 100 fold, that God wants you to be rich, being poor is a curse of the law, you've been freed by Christ, and if you, I quote him, will follow the success formulas of the word of God, you shall be abundantly wealthy. The implication, therefore, if you remain poor, the then you only have yourself to blame, don't you? All you have to do is ride check and give. I think such teaching is nonsense. Christianity is not a get-rich scheme. Christ has come before he blesses us financially. He wants to liberate you from the idol of wealth and money. And so there's great problems with this, just not the word of God. I mean, what do you do with the pastors in Liberia who are clearly not wealthy? What, even more than that, what do you do with Paul? What does Kenneth Copeland and his like do with Jesus, who had no place to lay his head? And yet, nevertheless, I don't want to, because of of that perversion of truth, I don't want to go to the opposite extreme and say, God never blesses us in this way. I think he does. In fact, I love the story told of Dallas Theological Seminary, which was formed in 1924, and uh, almost immediately after its forming was about to foreclose due to, to bankruptcy. In fact, uh, they had tried everything they could to raise support and nothing was coming in. And the creditors were going to close on noon of a particular day. And the president, on that day, when the, when the, the seminary was going to be foreclosed on, called all the founders together in the morning of his office, just hours before the seminary ended. And they, they made one last effort to pray to God. There was a man at that meeting, a famous author, Dr. Harry Ironside, who at times was somewhat irreverent, and he uh, prayed to God saying, God, we know the cattle on a thousand hills are yours. Please sell some of them and give us the money. (laughs) It just so happened that while they were praying, a cowboy walked into the president's office. He had just sold two carloads of cattle. He said to the president's secretary, I feel God wants me to give this money. Don't know if you need it, but here's the check. Secretary took that check. She was somewhat intimidated and knocking at the president's door, knowing the seriousness of the prayer meeting, but did so anyways, handed the check to the president. He looked at the amount, it was the exact amount that they needed to cover their debts. In fact, he not only recognized the amount, he recognized the man's name, the cattleman who had written the check, and he promptly said to Harry, God sold the cattle. <laughs> God blesses us this way. Friends, you need not worry. I'm telling you not based on my experience, though it would prove it to be true. You need not worry. God is faithful to his promise and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And often that, that need is met materially, but I believe it's always met spiritually. In fact, you remember verse 13. We considered it last week. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Right? We recall that Paul is not saying I can leap tall buildings in a single bound and bench press 300 pounds. 
Well, Paul is saying I could do all things that Christ brings my way. I could, maybe a better way to understand it is I could endure all things with contentment through Christ who strengthens me. I wonder if that's what Paul has in mind in verse 19 when he says God will meet every need of yours. He will supply you with joy and peace and contentment when you give and you will perhaps go without in doing so. You will not have this, this, um, you will, you will have joy. He will be, give you contentment. He will minister to you in this way. He will meet that need of yours. And we considered last week that contentment is better than all the wealth in the world because you have all the wealth in the world and no contentment. What does the wealth bring you? Wouldn't you not much rather have contentment? As the Bible says, godliness with contentment is great gain. And God is going to bring that contentment upon you when you give for the cause of missions. This is, I think, not only the truth of God's word, has once again been my experience in my 16 years of pastoral ministry. I have never known a Christian who has given, not once, and been sad about it. I have not met a single one that says, I gave and I wish I didn't give too much. I gave and I regret that I did so. I gave and now I'm going without. It hasn't happened a single time. I gave and I wish I could have that money back. It has not happened. I trust that's been your experience. Do you know why? Because my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful phrase there at the end of verse 19? According to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. He's not going to give out of his riches, but according to his riches. So if Bill Gates gave you out of his riches, he could give you five bucks out of his riches. You would much rather him give you according to his riches. Well, God is much richer than Bill Gates. He owns everything. And he plans to give you according to his riches in proportion with what God has available. He will bless you. Therefore, you can have confidence in giving to the cause of Christ. It comes down, I think, like all acts of obedience to faith. Do you trust him? Do you believe the promises of God? Giving generously, freely, cheerfully, sacrificially requires faith. It does. I once heard of a man, a pastor, who was speaking with a man who was struggling to give. He said, Pastor, I don't, if I give, start giving to the church, I, I won't have enough to meet my needs. And the pastor said, okay, well, let's try this arrangement. How about you try giving for one month? And if you fall short of any of your expenses, I personally will cover the shortage. And, and the man thought about it. He said, okay, I'll try that for one month. By the way, I'm not making this offer to any of you, just so, you're, so we're clear here, all right? So don't, don't hold me on this, right? But, but he said, he said, all right, let's try that. I'll do it for one month. We'll see what happens. And which the pastor said, now think about that. You're willing to put your faith in me, a mere man who owns very little, when God who owns everything has told you he will meet all of your needs. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? It requires faith. In fact, I think perhaps nowhere is our belief put to the test more practically than what we do with our money. It gives us a wonderful opportunity to actually live up to what we believe. God will supply it. In fact, as Paul considers the glory of Christ Jesus here, he moves on to this great and wonderful truth as we see lastly and quickly. Gospel partners seek God's glory through giving. Here we come in verse 20 and following to the closing comments of this wonderful epistle. And Paul here, if you will, bows his head and lifts up his hands. He no longer teaching or defending or explaining, simply worshiping as he says in verse 20, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. The glory of God he refers to. 
The glory of God is the radiance of His majesty, of His manifold perfections. The glory of God is the communication of who God is. And we know Him to be perfect and holy and beautiful, wise and true and just, powerful everywhere and all-knowing, loving, merciful, and gracious. The glory of God is the communication of those truths, the radiance of who God is, and it impacts us greatly. And Paul says, to Him be glory. I want Him to be a God is glorious. And then Paul, I think, is also saying that my longing, my prayer is that we would all know His glory, that we would all see his glory, that we would be in awe of his glory. May all the nations see the glory of God. For he would write in Romans 1 and verse 5, we received grace to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, he said. He says, I want the name of God to be seen as valuable, far more valuable than all names, all ideas, all possessions, all ambitions and dreams. Oh, magnify the Lord with us, the psalmist says, that will let us exalt his name together. This is what God calls for us to do, to bring him glory, to love the glory of God, to share the glory of God in places like Loudoun County and Liberia and Kurdistan and Eagle Butte and Guatemala, that others too would know the glory of God that is right before their eyes for the heavens declare the glory of God. The Bible tells us in Isaiah and 6.3 that the glory, the whole earth is full of his glory. God is calling out all around us, behold my glory. I am what you are made for. I am what you shall be satisfied in. My glory is extravagant and overwhelming. For we needed a Savior. He sent a Son. We needed forgiveness. He covered us with the righteousness of Christ. We needed our debts paid. He made us heirs of the kingdom of God. We needed to be reconciled with God. He adopted us into His family. We need the sting of death removed. He made us alive forever with Christ Jesus. He is extravagant in His glory. And the apostle says to him be glory. Let him have glory forever and ever across all the nations. I bring in the nations where we see in verse 21, he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. In other words, he says to you in Philippi, you know, we, I want to send my, we're sending our greetings. The brothers with me are greeting you and that you send your greeting to us. This beautiful picture is hundreds of miles apart, Philippi and Rome, and they're all united together in one family because of what God has done. In fact, you notice the family's expanded beyond our comprehension as we see in verse 22. All the saints agree you, uh, greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The gospel has even made it into the imperial palace as people perhaps tending gardens or serving meals or guarding Paul have now bowed their knee to King Jesus. They have seen God's glory. They have done so because of the grace of God in their life, in which Paul ends in verse 23. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul wrote 13 letters. Every letter he began with this phrase, grace to you. In other words, this letter will bring grace to you as you understand who God is. He ended every letter with grace be with you. As you close this letter, as you leave this service, may the grace of God go with you. Which teaches us that grace is not only what saves us, but grace is what continues with us. We are sustained by grace and governed by grace and guided by grace and kept by grace and strengthened by grace and sanctified by grace and enabled by grace, constantly dependent upon the grace of God. His grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. That grace, according to the apostle in verse 23, comes through one place, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is now the 40th time that Paul mentions the name of Jesus in this short letter. Uh, Once every two or three verses, he will tell us about Christ. 
It is a book, therefore, not simply about grace, but it is about Christ's grace. He would begin it by saying, describing himself as a servant of Christ, as he addressed the Philippians as saints in Christ. His imprisonment was for the cause of Christ. To him was, to him to live was Christ, and death ushered him into the presence of Christ. He exhorted them to live in a manner worthy of Christ by having the attitude of Christ. He called for them to glory in Christ. He counted everything as rubbish compared to Christ. He was saved by faith in Christ, and he eagerly awaits the return of Christ, at which time every tongue will confess the Lordship of Christ. Is he your Lord? Do you know this grace? Jesus Christ has come to this world to pay for our penalty of sin. He lived a perfect life in my place, died upon a cross, took the wrath of God upon himself in my place and in the place of all who would trust in Jesus. And three days later rose from the dead. The Bible has told us if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be, what is it, church? Saved. Saved. Right now, it's right there in front of you. You can be saved today and for all eternity if you would just lay hold of Christ. You will bow that knee to him. You are my Lord, and I believe in you. He will save you. He will give you his grace. I wonder, Christians, do you treasure this grace? Do you delight in it? In fact, do you delight in this grace so much that it makes you eager to sacrifice that others may know that grace? knowing that one day because of your sacrifice and that of countless other followers of Jesus Christ, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Until that day, let us echo our brother. Let us share his heart as we too say to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Why don't we say that together in verse 20? In fact, why don't you stand as we end our time this morning? Let this be our closing prayer according to verse 20. Say with me, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed.